When I first became a Christian in 2001, I was in the middle of college. My undergrad was essentially biochemistry, and I was studying. And all of a sudden, I went from someone who had no faith to now I'm a faith person who is sounded by people who have this very keen scientific mind who are starting to now challenge me around questions of faith. One of them was I had for my plant form and function, essentially a kind of a botany, chemistry type class. And he enjoyed kind of publicly in class ridiculing people who had faith. In fact, he would regularly make comments that would be little jabs at people who had a faith background. He was a PhD um, from Brown University. He was a brilliant man. And the thing that he was always kind of adamant about was just these different ways of highlighting in class. If he could find a way to illustrate faith wasn't, wasn't worth having, he would point it out in the lecture. I remember being so kind of like bothered by the way he would use that platform to essentially kind of bully people who have faith. And so as a brand new Christian who had no clue, I went to his office and, and said, hey, um, I've got questions. Um, you seem to have an antagonism towards the Christian faith. You seem to have a problem with the faith, faith in general. He said, no, 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 no. I have a problem with the Christian faith, mainly because they think that's the only faith you can have. I think that it doesn't matter what faith you have. It's just that you have faith. That's probably what matters the most, quite honestly. And I remember sitting there and leaning back, and here is this brilliantly trained, you know, Ivy League professor, and I said, well, with all due respect, sir, what you just said to me is it doesn't matter if the chair can hold you up. It only matters if you believe the chair could hold you up. And he said, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, no, I don't think faith is about sincerity or about subjectiveness. I think what matters most is the object of your faith not whether or not you have the faith or how much of it. And we're in this series called Relentless, and Relentless is specifically about saying, during this season of Lent, let's have a conversation around faith. And what's at the core of the Relentless Faith? What's at the core of Relentless Faith is not a building. It's not us being able to even broadcast this message or lights or teaching television. What's at the core of the Christian faith? What's at the center of a relentless pursuit of God is far more than sincerity. It's far more than just, well, if you've got a faith, that's good enough. Because sincerity is not strong enough to take you through life's struggles. Sincerity is only about as strong as the surface level that it exists on. Sincerity is a great hallmark greeting card. It's a horrible, horrible way and thing to hold on to when it feels like all hope is lost. Because sincerity is about you and what you have. And I think at the core of relentless faith, it's so much bigger and so much better than that. And to take you on that journey, I want to kind of walk you through a passage that in some ways is, I think, a really clarifying two verses that gives us an insight to what is at the core of a relentless faith. I want to take you to a place, a passage that means an incredibly, it means a lot to me. It's one of these verses that in my funeral, I want people 
to use one of these verses to, to describe my life, in fact. It's something that I think about frequently. It's one of those driving passages underneath my surface in everyday life. It's a passage written towards the end of a letter that Paul writes to a church in Corinth. A church that had a lot of struggles. I mean a lot of struggles. And Paul spends a bulk of his first letter to them outlining all the different issues that they have and how to address them. He's dealt with so many negative that as he turns towards the end of the letter, he centers in on the one positive that he wants them to remember. The core, the centrality of the Christian message that, that is the one thing, if you get that right, all this other stuff kind of comes with it. And in the middle of that final section of the letter, he makes a very brief, very brief kind of turn. And it's a tangent in this final section of 1 Corinthians. A tangent that actually gives us a peek underneath Paul's skin to show us his heart and what's driving him in the first place. If you have the Encounter Church app, um, you can find this in the message notes. You'll be able to read it a little bit later. Um, the passage is 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10. In verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles. Do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But Paul, as he's talking about all of these details, he, he turns and he says, but you know what? Even as I'm talking about the message and the messengers, I just got to be honest with you. I'm the least of all of those messengers. I'm the least of all of those people who would be called apostles. Because I, I persecuted the church. Now, if you've been around the Christian faith for a while, you know that Paul um, was, in his earlier years, a pretty kind of zealous, intense persecutor of the, the early church. In fact, in Acts chapter 22, verse 20, he says, when the blood of Stephen, your, your martyr, like your martyr Stephen, when, when that moment happened, when it was being shed, and how was it being shed? It was being shed in a moment of mob violence, partially rooted in racism and hatred, rooted in religious tension, that under the guise of a jury trial, they seek to prosecute Stephen, and much like Jesus, just a couple months before, it ends up in a sham trial. And what happens is they pursue Stephen, and they're so angry that they drag him. They drag him off the stage. They throw him out of the city. And they take off their outer garments because it's about to get ugly. And they take their outer garments and they put it at the feet of this young man named Saul, named Paul. Now, Paul says that he was there giving his approval for those who were killing Stephen. And then he leaves and he goes out. And he begins to murder, to arrest. Like Paul is on this rampage, dragging men and women out of their houses for them to be arrested for the Christian faith. 
Paul, decades later, when Acts 22.20 was written, decades later, still is haunted by the images of seeing Stephen killed that day. Of seeing the anger in the crowd throwing things at him. Of seeing people viciously attack him. And this is what Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. He's devastated because he was the one who killed him. Not he didn't pick up a rock, but he was there and he approved and it was a catalyst for him to go and do everything that he did. Now, what I love about this passage is that when Paul takes us on this tangent, we get a glimpse into the emotional life of Paul. And it can be tempting in that passage to see a man, for all the good that he's done, for all the churches that he started, really as a reaction to the church he tried to kill. And to say, oh, I get it. Paul, Paul's life was controlled by guilt. Paul's life was under the kind of the driving force of that guilty moment in his life. His biggest regret was what was really driving his faith. But then in a very surprising turn, in verse 10, Paul writes these words, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. The word but in that specific place turns the whole the whole direction of that phrase. You see, but it's kind of a it's a conjunction, it's a transitional phrase that means everything that I've just said, I'm about to directly contrast it. And he says, for all that I've done, but by the grace of God. And he says, and his grace to me was not without effect. You see, if you want to understand Paul, if you want to understand how does a man go from being the one who's taking the coats of people standing present there that day, ready to kill Stephen, so that they don't get blood on their jackets, so that they can rear back further to throw the stone as they viciously lash out and kill this young man. And Paul is taking their coat, so let me help you. I don't want to get blood on your new coat here. Let me take that. What takes a man like that who's trying to stop the church from becoming a man who goes out and starts more churches than anyone else who followed Jesus in the first century? It's this passage. You see, it was not guilt that drove Paul. It was not even sincerity that drove Paul. Paul was really sincere when he stood that day with the coats at his feet watching people kill Stephen. He was very sincere in his faith that day when he started to drag men and women out of their homes for the only reason of them being associated with Jesus Christ. So it's not sincerity that was at the core of his faith because he already had had that and that didn't drive him towards the Christian faith. It wasn't guilt because his use of the but completely contrasts that no, it's not guilt that's driving me. It's the grace of God that drives me. 
that at the core of my relentless faith is grace. That what pushed me forward, what moved me in my faith journey was grace. This grace of God is another way of saying this good news, this central message of the Christian faith, which was that mankind was disconnected, spiritually distant, and separated from God. And in that process, that he and that separation, that when there was no ladder on earth that could climb its way to heaven, when there was no way to to move towards God, God moved towards us. When there was no way to walk into heaven with holy confidence, God walked onto earth. That He moved towards us even though we were constantly moving away from Him. And that God on the cross and through the resurrection that flowed from that crucifixion three days later, that Jesus walked out of the grave Declaring and demonstrating to the world and to you and to me that the things that had held Jesus to the cross was not nails, but our guilt and our shame. That those things had been the things that had gotten in the way of our relationship with God. And that Paul had understood that it was grace that had made a way. That there was nothing, there was no good that he could do. There was no, right, think about it this way. One cherry, or a bowl of cherries, a bowl of cherries can be completely tainted by one cockroach that climbs in. Right? But a bowl of cockroaches cannot be made clean by one cherry that gets placed in it. Paul understood That no matter how much good he did, there was always some cockroach that was creeping in. Whether it was pride or arrogance or whether it was hatred towards others or whether it was the good he didn't do. That ultimately, for a man who knew all all hundreds of the Jewish rules and laws for the faith, he knew that there was no way he was good enough to check all the boxes every single day. Because it just takes one cockroach in a bowl of cherries to make it inedible and that God stepped down and with who he was took all of our guilt and our shame and that is what put him on the cross and what Paul had done essentially was a lot like what Walter Dodge did in the Man Gulch fire of August of 1949 you see in 1949, the Forestry Commission in Montana, one of the ways that they dealt with forest fires was they had fire jumpers. Fire jumpers would be dispatched to forest fires that were blazing. Montana is a a really kind of vast wilderness. And so as the forest jumpers flew over the fire, they would jump out, they would land, and with their tools, they would begin to set up a firewall and kind of to remove the brush that was fueling the fire. And Mid-August of 1949, the fire jumpers, um, about 14 men under the command of Wagner Dodge, get the call that there's a 10 a.m. fire, which means that by 10 a.m. the next morning, they expect that this fire is going to be out. So as they land, 
as they get closer to the fire, there's so much heat coming out of this fire that's in the midst of Helena National Forest that the airplane has to climb higher. And as it climbs higher, they jump out with their parachutes. But because they jump from a higher distance, something malfunctioned in the parachute that's carrying the communication equipment. So it shattered on the ground, but it wasn't an issue because this was a 10 a.m. fire. It's not a big deal. They're going to have it under control. This is about 4 p.m. So there's about 16 hours worth of fuel that they believe this fire has, and then it's done. So as they're kind of moving towards the fire, they land around 4 p.m. It takes them about an hour to get close enough to the fire, and when they get down into the ravine where the fire is beginning to spread... What they find is not six foot or two feet fire flames, not even 16 feet of fire flames. They find a wall of fire over 60 feet tall. Wagner Dodge realizes really quickly that this is not a 10 a.m. fire and that the fire is on them on all three sides and the only way out is to go straight up the ravine, which is almost impossible. So he screams to his firemen, get rid of your gear, throw your tools down, which is an insane thing to say to fire jumpers. Their tools are their life. And he's screaming, throw down the saw, throw down the shovel, run. And they begin to bolt up the hill. As they're running up the hill as fast as they can, Wagner Dodge realizes that the fire is actually moving faster than what they can run. And Wagner Dodge screams to his men, stop, come back, as he pulls out a thing of matches and throws a fire, throws the match right into the circle of grass that's not yet burned. (coughs) And as the grass begins to burn, over the couple minutes, there's just ash that remains. And he screams to his men, come jump inside of the circle. And his men, they had never seen that before. They were more sure and more confident of their legs to take them up the hill that they kept running. And Wagner Dodge dived into the middle of the ashes left in the circle of this grass fire. And as the fire came over and passed and around him, The updraft was so strong that it picked up his body two or three times because of the updrafts, picking him up and dropping him on the ground. He pours water into his handkerchief and he covers his mouth, trying to breathe through the smoke that's filling his, his lungs and his surrounding area. And eventually, after the roaring flames pass over him, minutes pass, And he stands up and he's standing in a field of ashes and he's still alive. Wagner Dodge was the only one who made it off that hillside that day. It's because Wagner Dodge realized that there was a consuming fire headed towards them. And the only place that was safe was the place where the fire had already consumed the grass. It was in the ashes where he was the safest. So he threw himself there. And what Paul had understood was that there was a consuming fire. The sense of justice that you feel and that I feel that the world's not right. The fact that 
While everyone may feel comfortable with the idea of Mother Teresa going to heaven, no one feels comfortable with the idea of Adolf Hitler or Stalin or Lenin or Pol Pot going to heaven. None of us are comfortable with those individuals strolling into the afterlife for eternity with good things. So there's this sense that even even our own souls testify that there has to be justice for the wrong done. And all of us are banking on that the line of justice is just right above what we've done. We're all hoping that that consuming fire's line stops here just right above everything you and I have ever done that we know is wrong and everything that you and I have not done that was right. And what Paul had understood in the aftermath of the persecution of the church when he had an experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus was that one cockroach ruins the whole bowl of cherries. That there's not enough good that can undo the bad. And that Paul, in that moment, recognizing that Jesus had already been consumed, had already been passed over by that fire of justice, that whoever was in him and under his ashes would be safe. And that that, as Paul says, as he's unpacking the core of his relentless faith, is why he says that grace to me was not without effect. The word not without effect means empty. He's like, you don't understand. I was guilty for so long. I understood the wrong I had done and the right that I didn't do. It wasn't that Paul was more guilty than you or me. It was that Paul had understood how guilty he really was. And that in the course of that realization, understanding that all that guilt and shame had been thrown on Jesus, Paul threw himself into the ashes and found forgiveness and found grace that Paul was no longer marked by what he had done. He was marked by what Jesus had done. That that, as Jesus would say in one of his famous teachings, that he who has been forgiven much, loves much. That for many people, the idea of, well, guilt is a great fuel for faith. One of the things I'm intentional about in my household is I don't use guilt as the motivator or as a tool in shaping my daughter's faith. Because guilt for the human soul is a lot like gas in a diesel engine. It's going to sputter a little bit. It may even get you a little bit further down the road, but eventually it dies. Because the human soul was never meant to run on guilt. It finds its freedom. It finds its liberation. It finds its hope, its peace, and its joy and grace. That it's no longer... For Paul, it was no longer about trying to keep the rules. It was about the relationship that had been birthed through understanding that God had loved Paul so much that he was willing to die 
for him so that Paul could have life. And when you understand that grace, when you understand who you are in light of who he is, when you quit measuring yourself by those around you who you are better than, when you start, when you stop getting subjective with your standards and you get objective with your standards, which is perfection, all of a sudden, we're all in the same playing field. And I would argue that at the core, I, I would say, I would actually go as bold to say this. Show me someone who is relentless in their faith. And the amount of relentless pursuit of their faith towards God is directly proportional to the amount of understanding they have of the grace of God. More knowledge doesn't make you love Him. More time spent in a church doesn't foster relentless faith. At the core of the relentless faith is a deeper understanding of grace. And that fuels all of these other things. When you understand, like Paul, that by the grace of God, you are what you are, it shouldn't just leave you the same. There should be an effect to the cause. See, Paul didn't love God and obey God so that God would love him back. Paul knew God loved him so much that he would die for him. And that made Paul want to love him and obey him even more. Really different. And we all intrinsically get this, right? You can watch a child obey a parent. And if the child is obeying the parent because of the parent's authority and power and the kind of the guilt and the control that the parent has over that kid, You can watch that moment and then you can watch a child obeying a parent out of love and respect for the parent. The actions may look the same, but the motivation is radically different. And it will have an impact on the relationship that that child has with that parent down the road. And that ultimately Paul would realize that no, God loved me first. And I get to love him back. And he says, that's why, no, I work harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace that was with me. Paul's like, if you want to understand what pushes and drives me, it's the grace of God that transformed me. Transformed me from Saul to Paul from persecutor to proclaimer. That is what made all the difference in my life. Guilt is about transactions. It's about trying to get enough to balance out the other side. Grace is knowing that God moved from His side to our side so that we could one day move back to His. And Paul said, it made me work harder than all of them. 
because I was so motivated, I was so inspired by His love and His grace that it made me work harder. And I love the actual phrase when he says, I worked harder than all of them. The word work there means to, to work yourself to an exhaustion. But what some scholars believe it's actually a phrase that was pulled from um, the world of artistry and craftsmanship. It was, it was a phrase that was used by an artist or a craftsman after they had labored over a piece of music or a performance or an artwork, or a statue, or a building. When they had exhausted themselves over making their craft perfect because of their love and their passion for the craft. Paul said, I worked myself towards exhaustion. Not to get his love, but because I'm loved. Because when you understand the one who gave your life, who gave you life, there's nothing that he could ask that would ever be considered a sacrifice. <coughs> really personal in my life, and I'll give you a little bit of a kind of warning, this is a little weird, but I, I, as a pastor, I, I sit with a lot of people over the last 18 years I've been a Christian. And I know that, like I said last week in the parable of the sower, that those four soils, I've seen a lot of people's different Christian journeys. I've seen a lot of people who started and it was really emotional, but there wasn't enough root to carry them through to bring fruit into their lives. And so when, when it got hard, they checked out. And it's really the dangers of the profession for me is that I can stand in rooms, I can stand in conferences, I can speak on a stage, and I can sing the words, you have my all, or you have my life, or take everything. I can sing, sing these really great songs that our team leads us in that has these bold declarations and lyrics. And I know that if I'm not careful, I can sing, you can have my all with my words, but then when I start to walk through my life, I have caveats all around. And I say, you can have it all, but just not this or this. Or ask for this. You can have my everything. Just not that something. Or that something. Or that someone. I know. If I'm not careful. I can sing words. That my life doesn't reflect. And so something I do. Is I essentially pull out a sheet of paper. During prayer time sometimes. And I just kind of write a blank check with my life. And I sign the bottom. No one ever sees it. it. It's really weird. I get it. But it's about making sure that the soil of my heart stays soft for him. Because I recognize on the clearest moments of my faith that on August 7th, 2001, Jesus stepped into my life and absolutely, radically transformed it. That I should be dead today. But I'm alive. That I was lost, but now I'm found. That what I had done 
no longer defines what I do. That grace had completely transformed me. And I think back to that moment frequently because had it not been for Jesus, I wouldn't be who I am today. My kids wouldn't exist. I wouldn't be married to my wife because I really wouldn't be alive. And I know that at the very depth of my soul. And sometimes in my time with Him and my prayers with Him, I have to pull out a sheet and say, God, my life is still a blank check because Your life was a check for mine. I still want to love You more today than I loved You yesterday. And God, there's nothing I won't do for You. Because there's nothing that You wouldn't have done to reach me. That ultimately, I want to work as hard as I can. Not so that I get His approval. I already have it. Like I don't do things for my wife so that she'd love me more. I do things for my wife because I love her. And I do things for my God because He loved me. And out of that love, out of that grace, comes a relentless faith. And that if you and I are going to move towards a more relentless faith in this season of Lent, then we have to make sure that at the core of our faith is a deeper understanding of grace and a deeper appreciation of the substance of His love. That it's not guilt, it's not sincerity, it's grace that's at the core of the relentless faith.